So let me pray and then we'll, we'll dive into today's passage. So Father, we thank you so much for, thank you for your word. And Lord, thank you for how challenging it can be to us. Uh, Lord, thank you for how varied and different it is. Uh, and that we get to, to look into today things that are going on even now in the throne room of heaven. And so please give us insight, give us wisdom, please challenge us in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, I spent a lot of time this last week uh, just kind of reflecting on, it's 20 years since 9-11. And this past week I was back in Chicago and I was actually walking in the spaces where I was when it happened. And I had all these memories flooding to me of like, oh, there used to be a TV on the wall there. And that's where we thought it was just like a Cessna that hit it. And then that was the classroom that I was in when the professor came in and said, there's been a terror attack. You can go to the lounge down the hall and, and see what's happening. And, you know, that's been swimming around in my head a lot this week. And, you know, we just had this chapter, Revelation chapter four read to us. And, you know, if, if you're here and you're not a Christian, you might even be thinking in light of all that we're reflecting on this week and maybe all that's going on in your, your own life, you might be thinking like, what a load of nonsense. What, what a total load of nonsense. All these people sitting here and speculating about heaven, it's a waste of time, heaven's not real. Or maybe if you're a Christian, you might be thinking, okay, heaven, that's great and all, the book of Revelation, interesting. All this talk about God's throne room, but it doesn't help me practically. How does thinking about heaven help me fix my relationships with my family? How does it help me at work this week? How, does it really even deal with my loneliness, my anxiety? Is this like, what, what does looking at Revelation 4, 5, 6, and 7 actually have to do? But if you think that, it means you either think uh, that the spiritual world doesn't exist at all, or it might mean that practically you think it has no bearing on us today in the world of real things, of tangible things, of things that you can see, that you can touch, that you can smell. It doesn't have any bearing on our real problems. Well, do you remember the Netflix show? Uh, Stranger Things. Uh, so I remember when that came out, I binged the entire thing over a weekend. And if you haven't seen it, I'm going to ruin it a little bit for you, but it's been five years, so too bad. Uh, what happens in the show is that a doorway is open to an alternate universe. And in the show, they refer to this parallel world as the Upside Down. And it's a terrible, gray, dark world with ash that's always falling, sticky things, and monsters with no faces. And as the name of the show would indicate, as the two worlds overlap and interact, these strange things begin to happen in the world that we know, in the world that we live in. Now I want you to imagine for just a minute that something like that is true. Imagine for a minute that there is an alternate universe and that somehow there was a doorway opened into our universe. And if that were true, it means all sorts of strange things might happen. Things in this world would be changed. And imagine if you got to enter into this other world, but what if instead of a great, dark, monster-filled world, what if, what if it was magnificent? What if it was splendid? What if it was far more beautiful, far more extraordinary than our own world? What if it was an ultimate reality and compared to our reality, uh, our reality is like a, like a shoe closet compared to it? What if everything we know, everything we see, everything we touch, everything we hear is just a dim reflection of this other greater reality? Well, that's what's happening at this point in the book of Revelation. A doorway to the ultimate reality has been opened. 
And John, the apostle, has been invited into it. He's invited into this parallel reality. And what he sees shows us that what happens in heaven not only has some effect on our reality, what happens in heaven actually has complete, uh, completely and totally affects our world. It affects what we can see, what we can touch, what we can hear. And that the problems and troubles that we have, it touches those things. It deals with what we face with our families. It deals with what we face in our work, with our loneliness, with our anxiety. Everything is deeply affected by what happens and what is said in heaven. And perhaps even more powerfully, how we react to heaven, how you and I react to what's happening there, to who is in heaven, to what is said there, how we react to that actually seals our future. And so what's going on in the rest of, of the book that is looking into this other reality. From the beginning of chapter 4 until the end of chapter 22, we're actually we're peering into heaven. And we're looking at things no longer from our familiar earthly point of view, but from an unsettling heavenly perspective. And that's why there's all the weird images. Because we're seeing a reality that is different from ours. So that's what we're doing now for the rest of the series. We're taking a look behind this curtain into the unseen spiritual realm. And here's the thing. If we take the time to do that and actually begin to grasp what's happening there, then we'll be able to do what we talked about last week. We'll be able to say and sing hallelujah, no matter what the circumstances are. And remember, what I'm hoping in this series is is to give us a framework for the entire book. And my hope in the series is that you'll be so comfortable with the main themes of the book that you could explain it to someone else. That's why I showed you a part of that video again. I want you to know that. And so let's first just, let's just get the lay of the land. We're covering a lot of ground in a short period of time today. So here's what happens in chapters four and five. Here's a, a slide to help you visualize it. So there you go. This is all of what's happening in chapters four and five. So if you look at the, the center there, uh, you see the throne. And the center of heaven is a throne. And on the throne is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And surrounding the throne in concentric circles are, first, you have these four incredible living creatures covered with eyes and, and, uh, and six wings. It says that one of them is like a lion, the second like an ox, the third had a face like a man, and the fourth is like an eagle. And then the next circle out are 24 elders. And you get the sense that these 24 elders are incredibly important because they're all wearing golden crowns. And they're all sitting on their own thrones. And then the next circle out, there are thousands upon thousands, 10,000 times 10,000 angels surrounding the elders and the living creatures. And then finally, the outer ring is every living creature in heaven and on earth. And as you look at this, as you read this, what you discover is that every single being described here around the throne is all focused in one direction. They're all focused towards the throne. And at each level around the throne, they're praising God. And they're saying things like uh, chapter 4, verse 8. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And in verse 11, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And by your will, they were created and have their being. And so in 4 and 5, chapters 4 and 5, all the attention is inward. All the attention is focused towards the throne. But then here's what happens in chapters 6 and 7. Take a look at this. Here's the next one. Going out from the throne, then, is power and authority and love. That's all radiating out from the throne in chapters 6 and 7. 
Um, chapter 6 and 7, they actually break down a little bit further like this. So, um, you know, I can give you these later so feel if you want them. You don't have to, like, scribble them down now. But each of the first, in chapter 6 and 7, and then you, it, like, opens up these, it talks about these seals. And, and there's a scroll, and as it opens up, there are these, these seven seals. And the first six seals is either something going out from the throne or coming back to the throne. And then finally, there's the seventh seal, which is a strange and shocking silence. And so you have the four horsemen of the apocalypse. You hear from the martyrs, there's an earthquake. And then there's the silence. And then just remember where all this fits in on our timeline. Here's the timeline once more. And all seven of these seals, that's the one across the top on the timeline. They all happen in the age that we're living in now. Although it's most likely that the last two seals haven't happened yet, that actually those will come much closer to the, to the time when Jesus will return. So there's a bit of an overview of what's going on. Now, if in this world, these fantastic living beings and angels and horses and lightning and thunder, if that world is connected to our world, if what happens in that realm affects what happens in our realm, then follow me here, what happens there matters here. Because in that world is a being so immense, so powerful, so glorious, so wondrous, that even the most fantastic creatures, creatures that you and I would be tempted to worship, they themselves are turned to look at him and they're worshiping the one who's seated on the throne. And so if that world affects our world, then it matters where we turn our attention. And so is my attention turned towards the throne? Am I like the creatures and the elders and the angels looking inwards? Or have I turned my back? And I want you to notice that in spite of everything that is happening, all this, this glory that was read to us, this amazing scene, in spite of all of that that's happening, there's a problem. And it's difficult to imagine that in a room like this, there'd be a problem. But what's amazing is you get to chapter 5 and there's a problem. So turn over to chapter 5. And even in the midst of this incredible worship with these six-winged creatures that look like a lion and an ox and a man and an eagle with eyes everywhere and the 24 elders bowing down and laying their crowns, John, it says, he wept. And he wept because there's a problem. Because the one seated on the throne has a scroll. And there's no one worthy to open it. Now, a scroll is a fairly common item to find in a room like this. But this particular scroll has seven seals on it, it says. A seal was a symbol of the authority of the one who wrote the scroll. And it's pretty clear that the one seated on the throne has written this scroll and has sealed it. And inside the scroll seems to be an important message from the one seated on the throne about the future of all creation. But the problem is... That future can't happen unless the scroll is opened. And so the angel proclaims in chapter 5, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? And then it describes the scene where they search all of heaven. And they search all of earth. And they even search under the earth. And yet they couldn't find anyone worthy to open the scroll. And then look at what John says in verse 4. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. 
And so here's John standing in the throne room of God and he's weeping because the search for the one who is worthy has come up short. They've looked everywhere under every stone. They found no one who is worthy. And I, I want to pause and just think for a minute. Have you felt that way? Like you've searched and searched and searched and everywhere you look, you can't seem to find the one thing that fulfills your desire, that fulfills your hopes, that fulfills your dreams. This is exactly what's happening in the throne room of heaven. And so just like maybe you've wept, John is weeping. But then as John is weeping, one of the 24 elders says to him, verse 5, Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. But then look, I love this. This is one of my favorite parts in the whole Bible. Look how John describes what he turns around to see. The elder describes a lion. The lion of the tribe of Judah. Then verse 6. Look what John says. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain standing in the center of the throne encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. What a shocking contrast. John is told there's a lion, but when he looks directly at him, he sees a lamb instead. And in this moment, what John is showing us is that whoever would see the lion, whoever would be able to see the triumphant, the glorious king, must first see the lamb the suffering king who sacrificed himself for his people. And catch this, at the center of all this praise, all this glory of fantastic creatures, of 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones, each wearing a crown, surrounded by 10,000 times 10,000 angels, is Jesus Christ who is crucified, buried, and risen from the dead. He's on the throne. And he stands there in all of his glory as a lamb who's slain. And it's how we respond to him that matters most in this world. Because think about it. He's invited right to the center. says he's standing on the throne. Which means he is the most important thing, the most important being, the most important person in this world and the other. He is the most glorified. He is the most praised, the most worthy in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And actually, if you read into chapter five, all the praise that was going to the father who was seated on the throne now goes to the the lamb, to the son who's on the throne. And so how we respond to him changes everything about how we live in this world. That if he is actually on the throne, it should change everything about this world. But this has to cause us to pause and to think, how do I respond to Jesus Christ? Do I turn to him? Do I embrace him? Do I worship him? Do I have him to the side? Do I have him behind me? Do I find myself or perhaps someone or something else? Do I I give more glory to that? And here's why this matters. If Jesus Christ is this glorious, if he is this worthy, and if what happens in heaven... And what is said in heaven really matters if it really affects our world, our day-to-day reality, then there are some massive implications for us. 
But if it's really true, if he really is the one who's seated on the throne, then it has implications for us. Uh, I'm going to give you three of them. And the first is this. We need to tell the world that Jesus is worthy. That's the first implication of this. That if, if he is on the throne, if he is worthy, then we need to tell the world that he's worthy. Um, I had another memory flood back to me um, because where I was this week was at my alma mater. And I was walking around the classroom building where I took all my classes when I was a, a student. And uh, I, I had this memory flood back to me of when I took Greek. And I was really bad at it. I really struggled. Um, and you know how you have some of those professors, um, you know, some of those teachers who just, you know, every now and again, they're just sick, they're just not around, they canceled class, whatever. My Greek professor, in the two straight years that I had him, leading up to this point in my life, had never canceled class, he'd never missed anything. And so it was like, you just have always wanted that one respite of like, please, could you cancel class? And one day, in my fourth semester of taking Greek, near the end, I walk up to the classroom and there's a sign posted on the door and it said, Greek grammar to canceled. And I, I, I had to read it three times to make sure that it was the right class and the right professor because this guy never missed class and it really was him. And so what did I do? I turned around and I started walking out the building and I started coming across the other people who were in the class and I would tell them, it's canceled, it's canceled. Every person I met along the way, I was like, it's canceled. This is such a monumental thing. An hour later, when the class is over, I actually went back and I took the sign and like every good college student, I put it up on my dorm room wall just to celebrate that moment. I, listen, I had to go and tell everyone. I had to. And when there's good news, you have to go and tell. We need to tell the world that Jesus is worthy. Why do we do that? Well, because what happens... When the seals are open, we have to tell people because when the seals are open, and just keep in mind the timeline, the events that come about as a result of these seals being broken are, for the most part, they're not in sequential time order, but they're all happening alongside each other in the time in between Jesus' first coming, which happened 2,000 years ago, and his second coming, which is going to happen sometime in the future. And what happens when these seven seals are opening is suffering. When these seals are open, there's tribulation. There are the first four seals are the, the four horses, and these four horses all bring some sort of suffering to the earth. You know, one of them is called the pale horse, and that one brings sickness and death across the world. And let's be honest, we often find suffering so meaningless. Maybe that's how you felt the last 18 months. And it leads us to ask the question, why? And what this passage shows us is that our times that we live in now are going to be filled with suffering. But that suffering can't be meaningless. It can't be purposeless. And the reason is that the one who is standing on the throne the one who's worthy to open the seals, how is he described? As one who suffered. He's the lamb who has been slain. And yet he stands on the throne, wounds and all for everyone to see. And so if he suffered, then your suffering and the suffering around you can't be meaningless. 
Your suffering, all suffering has a purpose. It's either there to refine you, to make you more like Jesus who suffered for you, or it's part of God's ultimate vindication for all wrongdoing. But all suffering has a purpose. And that's why the message of Jesus is beautiful to those who are suffering, to those who are in tribulation, because Jesus' tribulation, the suffering of the Lamb, it dignifies all human suffering. We Christians have a God who suffered. The God of the universe suffered and died, and that means that no suffering is meaningless. And the suffering doesn't end with just the first four seals. Look at the sixth one. You find it in verse 12. It describes an earthquake, and the sun turns black, and the moon turns blood red. It says that the stars fall from the sky, and every mountain comes crashing down. Now, this clearly hasn't happened yet. But in the very next couple of verses, we see why. We see why we need to tell the world that Jesus is worthy. Look at verse 15. Remember, no one can stand before God and not be absolutely struck by his glory, by his holiness. Everyone who enters his presence, remember this from last week? You enter God's presence and what happens? You fall to the ground because of the recognition of your own brokenness and your own sinfulness. And that's what's happening here in these verses. Notice this in verse 15, that every kind of person is listed from king to slave. And all of them, get this, all of them, they actually ask the mountains and the rocks to fall on them. They want the mountains and the rocks to crush them. Because that would be better than standing before God. Because look at verse 17. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Listen, we need to tell the world that Jesus is worthy because no one can withstand the great day of his wrath against sin. Nobody can withstand it. And if you have any compassion, any respect for other people, you would tell them. We saw it last week, but John, nobody can withstand it unless... Unless in this life, in this time, they also look to him. That they turn to him in repentance and put their trust in him to save them. That's the only way we can withstand the judgment. That's the only way we can withstand the wrath. Is knowing that Jesus took it for us and putting our trust in him. And so we have to. That's the first implication is that we have to tell the world that Jesus is worthy. The second implication is we need to tell our own hearts that Jesus is worthy. And this is where the fifth seal comes in. In the midst of all this tribulation and suffering, in the fifth seal, we meet the people who are called the martyrs, people who have been killed or who have suffered for telling the world that Jesus is worthy. And they pray a prayer. They pray this in chapter 6, verse 10. How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Now, this prayer shows us two things. First, it shows us that God's people, his church, they're also going to suffer the effects of the four horses. So we don't, as Christians, we don't get to escape that. That we will suffer and go through tribulation with the rest of the world. And the fact that they pray this prayer shows us that it's it's okay for us to pray this way. It's why we do pray this way in our services. To pray in the midst of suffering, whether it's yours or another's, that you would pray, how long, O Lord? How long until this suffering is over? 
But secondly, it shows us that we need to constantly tell our own hearts that Jesus is worthy. Let me put it in, let me just break it down really practically why you need to do that. Have you been wronged? Have you ever been hurt by someone? And what's often in our hearts in those times is what? It's to get revenge, vengeance. But what these martyrs show, us, martyrs show us, these people who deserve vengeance more than anyone else, what this shows us is that we need to tell our hearts that revenge doesn't belong to us. But it's the Lord who avenges wrong. And at the end of history, Jesus is going to make all things right, and everyone who deserves to be punished will be punished. All the vengeance that needs to be made will be made. And so what do we need? What do our hearts need? We need to remind our hearts again and again as we experience suffering, as we experience harm, that Jesus Christ is worthy. That he suffered, that he experienced great harm, greater harm than we ever will. And he will one day make all suffering right. He will one day set the world right. And so that's the second implication. But the thing that will change you, the thing that will transform you the most is for you to tell Jesus that he is worthy. That's the thing that will transform you the most is for you to tell Jesus that he is worthy. You know, in chapter seven, we get this break from the seven seals. It's like an interlude. And in this interlude, uh, John sees, it says 144,000 people. And it's 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And it says, all of them are sealed with the seal of God on their foreheads. This is, again, this is a vision that he's seen. But what's amazing is just like when he's told there's a lion over there, And then he turns and what does he see? He sees a lamb. There's 144,000 over there. But when he looks at them, when he looks in their direction, he sees a multitude, it says, that no one can count from every nation, tribe, people, and language. And so what's that image showing us? Well, the 144,000 is meant to show us that God has given his seal to a complete number of people. That no one who is supposed to receive his seal misses it. He doesn't leave anyone out. But then it's also meant to show us that the complete number of people who receive the seal of God upon their foreheads is a multitude beyond what anyone could count from every nation, people, tribe, and language. And so God seals a complete number of people. No one is left out who's supposed to be sealed. But whatever that complete number is, it's massive. It's beyond what you could count. It's like the sand on the seashore. And I just want to read to you what happens to people, to people like you and me who turn their attention to the one who's on the throne. Because once their attention is there, they are consumed with telling Jesus that he is worthy. Once you put your attention on him, you can't look at anything else. So here's what happens in chapter 7, starting in verse 10. I'm just going to let it speak for itself. You can read along with me. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the lamb. All the angels were standing round the throne and round the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. Then one of the elders asked me, these in white robes, who are they? 
Where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know. And he said, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence. Never again will they hunger. Never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water. And God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Jesus Christ is worthy. He is worthy of your undivided attention. He is worthy of your praise. He is worthy of all glory and all honor because he is the lamb at the center of the throne where every fantastic beast and and creature in heaven and every creature on heaven and in the earth is focused on him and giving him praise and honor and glory. And so he's worthy of your praise and honor and glory. And thinking about him matters then as you deal with family junk. Because he's seated on the throne. His word is authoritative. His actions have authority. It matters as you navigate your career that Jesus Christ is worthy and is at the center of the throne. It matters as you work to overcome anxiety. It matters as you sit on another Zoom call at work this week. It matters as you do a job that you hate right now so you can do a job that you love in the future. It matters that Jesus Christ is seated at the center of the throne, reigning over all of history. And so we can sing these songs now that you are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Turn your attention there now. Turn your heart there now. Sing these songs today. Sing them tomorrow because that is what changes us. That is what transforms us. That is what gives us the strength to cling on in the midst of tribulation, of sickness, of suffering, of poverty. That salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Now, we can't leave this section of Revelation without looking at the seventh seal. So you have to turn to chapter 8. And look at verse 1. It says, When he opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Seals 1 through 6 have been loud and active and powerful. And then you get to seal number 7. There's silence. And I spend a lot of time thinking about this verse. What does the silence mean? Just think about how shocking it is. Why the silence? Well, we'll come to these verses next week, but if you read on in chapter 8 and got to verse 3 in the midst of the silence, 
An angel comes and brings God the prayers of all God's people. And this is especially important if you're not yet a Christian. Do you know what it means? But there's silence. It means there's still time. There's still time for God to hear your prayer. But you can pray your prayers, and at the end of the silence, the angels bring them to God. Heaven will be silent for you, for you to pray, for you to ask him into your life. And when you do, you will be able to stand when he appears. You'll be able to stand when he appears. Not only will you be able to stand, but Jesus Christ will stand next to you, his hand on your shoulder, saying, do not be afraid. So heaven is silent for you in order that God can hear your prayers. And so let's pray now, knowing that our prayer is being offered up to God in the surprising silence of heaven. To the one who sits on the throne, salvation belongs to our God. The one who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever. Lord, hear our prayers. We long for the day when never again will we hunger, never again will we thirst. And the sun will not beat down on us or any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne is our shepherd. And he leads us to springs of living water. And so we long for the day when you'll finally wipe away every tear from our eyes. And so we say, come, Lord Jesus. Amen.